Hello everyone, this is Alex Trimble from The Alex Trimble Show, and thank you again for joining us on this phenomenal, exciting learning journey together. Today, we have with us a good friend of mine, Mr. Harry Brule. Harry Brule is the CEO and president of PathPoint and has been such since 2017. PathPoint is a phenomenal organization that supports individuals with disabilities and or mental health diagnoses live the life that they choose to live. And I can't tell you just how amazing this organization is and the technology that they're leveraging to help these individuals live a life that they can be happy with. But as always, before we get started, please feel free to put yourself in the raffle for a free one hour coaching session. Um, we offer one a month and all you have to do is comment under this video on YouTube, LinkedIn, or even Facebook, asking a question about leadership and leaving the hashtag V-T-H-E-A-T show, S-H-O-W. That's all you have to do and you'll be entered in to win a free coaching session with this worth $250. But let's go on and get ready for this interview. See you soon. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trimble from GPS Leadership Solutions. I'm so excited to have you here with the Alex Trimble Show today. Um, I have, um, I would like to actually say a friend of mine from, from years back, and um, his story is phenomenal, as well as what he's been able to accomplish over the years. So I'm really looking forward to, to, to him sharing his yeah. advice, his stories with everyone here today. Um, hey, how you doing, Harry? Good. Nice to be here. Good to see you again, Alex. Uh, again, it's wonderful to see you. Uh, you know, you, I'm going to let you talk a little more about what you do. Um, but you recently, recently being the last three years, you transitioned to becoming the, the CEO and president of PathPoint. Um, would you mind just really quickly kind of sharing what that organization does and what you do? Uh, sure. PathPoint uh, supports people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and mental health diagnoses and at-risk youth. Uh, in Central California, we support uh, 2,700 people annually, have about 500 employees, and serve um, from Los Angeles up the coast, uh, a couple, couple more counties, then inland to Bakersfield. Um, provide supports for people to be able to work and get jobs, to live independently, and to integrate into the community. Uh, and in our behavioral health side, we do a lot of housing as well. Uh, so. so, Harry, uh, I, I've got to start off with this question because people, they, they likely don't know your past. Um, you were the CEO of one of the largest and most significant core organizations in the country, um, Conservation Legacy. And I would say that, and I think a lot of people would agree with me who are, who are in that world, um, you, things almost didn't happen without people talking to you. And <laughs> it's so funny because you know, you're, just, you're just really cool, funny guy, um, yet you had so much influence in your in the span of in your own personal span as well as the entire industry can i ask you a little bit about you know how do you think you went about yeah. building that influence that you had in, in that industry uh well i in the conservation core world i had a unique uh path and um 
I, I was sort of thinking about if you read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book, there's a lot of stuff in there about, uh, you know, is Bill Gates the, the most intelligent uh, IT person in the world? Well, he's certainly up there, but he also got in right when computers were first coming in. He was at a school in high school that had computers that he could sit in all night and practice and learn on. And so he sort of hit it at the exact right time. And you can go back and look at the richest people in America prior, prior to technology all came about in the industrial revolution. You know, people sort of being at the right place at the right time and not saying they weren't brilliant <laughs> too, but there are plenty of brilliant people who weren't at the right place at the right time. And so I think for me in the conservation core world, I sort of hit that right place at right time in that I started working in a, a startup urban core in 1991 uh, before, not only before AmeriCorps, but before George Bush's Points of Light and National Commission on Community and National Service. Um, and so I, I hit it and got experience on the ground and learned about this before it sort of started taking off. And then after working at a local core for a few years, I, uh, this, it, it's just sort of serendipitous. I got to work at the national level, but it was because uh, we were hosting a training uh, and the two trainers, one of them arrived and the other one got caught in a snowstorm. And so the trainer who got there asked me to pitch in and I pitched in and someone in the audience worked at the National Association of Service and Conservation Corps, which is now the core network, and said, hey, you can do this. I'm going to, and eventually offered me a job and I moved to Washington. And I spent 10 years working uh, at the national level and I got to know a lot. I mean, I'm, I always thought of myself not as any kind of expert, but as someone who could learn ideas from different places and collect them and kind of take them back. And so when I decided to go work at a core again, my family, we were ready to leave Washington DC area. I wanted to, I wanted to be back in the field working at the ground level. Went out to Colorado to a very small conservation core. You know, I, there were two year round full-time staff. I was one of them. <laughs> uh, and, but I had this knowledge from all these other cores around and I had relationships with cores across the country because of my work at the national level. So I knew that little program had to grow and I was in a good position to help it grow. And so that's what grew eventually into conservation legacy. I don't know, that's a long answer, but it's, it's I think some is being in the right place at the right time. And then uh, I think being willing to know there are a lot of smarter, more accomplished people who I can learn from and work with. Well, you know, I heard, I did, I heard three things from what you just shared. One, uh, looking again at Malcolm Gladwell's book, right place, right time, but also you took the took the risk in trying something that wasn't necessarily a big a big deal at that point. I mean, did, did you see something? Do you see it? It could have been bigger in the future, or did, just happened to you? You tried that initial opportunity. Well, when I went out to Colorado, uh, this program Southwest at the time was called Southwest Youth Corps in Durango, which is beautiful town, but very small in the middle of nowhere, you know, three hours from a freeway. Um, I knew the program had huge potential because the parts of it that were not working well were things I knew I could fix, which was finances and admin and systems. And I knew on the ground it delivered high quality. And I, I think that's sort of a lesson 
that I learned there, but I think it's applicable in my work today and everywhere, is that the most important thing you can do in an organization is have high quality product on the ground. That's the hardest part. That's the most important part. Fixing the finances, admin systems, uh, that stuff can be worked on and done, but if the actual product on the ground isn't good, it doesn't matter. And so I had a good base to, to work from. Uh, and I, I went out there in 2004 and, and another sort of taking opportunity, uh, kind of where you were going with that, Alex, was that in 2009, after Barack Obama became president, Ken Salazar, who was the, had been a senator from Colorado, became the Secretary of Interior. And right after he came in, he went to do this speech at a, at a conference of all young people. And as he, he gave the speech, he said, uh, we're gonna build the best youth conservation corps the world has ever seen. And I watched that speech and I said, okay, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, we can help him do that. Uh, and so we then, that's where I, I went to, uh, we were a little bigger by then, but we had merged with a couple other programs and grown to across a few states. And so I went to the two biggest entities out there, which was the core network, right, formerly worked, and to the Student Conservation Association, which was the biggest national core program. And I came to both of them and said, hey, let's come together and get a lobbyist and take advantage of this thing. Um, And they both agreed and put lots of energy and talent uh, into that. And so we built this coalition that then we got a whole bunch of other conservation corps and other groups like Sierra Club and such to be part of, uh, and some hook and bullet groups, you know, so we tried to make it, it was bipartisan, nonpartisan, but just all of us working together uh, to help (laughs) the secretary uh, enact this incredible vision. And USDA, of course, uh, Secretary Vilsack played a big part in it too. Um, So I think some is that, yeah, seeing there's opportunity, but then knowing how to jump in and try to take advantage of it. And I think what worked well for us was just doing it together. You know, we could all learn. We learned so much from some of these other groups that participated in this effort. And it was getting the ideas of everyone made us stronger. um, And everyone took part in it and worked on it. And uh, you were... (laughs) Part of that, Alex, is working with the Park Service on, on the pieces that came there. But it was an exciting time to, to do that. And I think uh, all the programs that were part of that grew with it, which was made it fun, too. Well, were you a bit nervous? I mean, I mean, to be completely honest, you heard the secretary. You said, wow, there's an opportunity for me to help him, which is, again, I think that's already a phenomenal set because I don't think most people think of that, think of opportunities like that, like, oh, this is an opportunity for me to help someone else. Um, but you thought about it and you could have kept it to yourself. You could have tried to take it on yourself. Um, were you nervous to bring someone else in? Maybe they were going to take all the credit for it. Maybe they take off without you. Or what were your thoughts around that? Oh, no, because I, uh, that that wasn't, no, because, uh, I don't think I could have done it alone because I was representing one program in one place. I mean, this really needed to be a national effort representing all of us together. And my philosophy all along was a couple things. One is if we all work together, sort of raise the sea and float all the boats kind of 
thing. The other thought I had, though, legitimately was that the goal was to get more opportunities for young people and more opportunities for public lands. And ultimately, if they wore the uniform of the organization I worked in or they wore the uniform of another organization, it didn't really matter. You know, my goal was not make my organization better than everybody else and the biggest program around. It was let's get this whole movement growing and stronger and let's help everybody all over the country. And typically the conservation corps have fairly well-defined geographic areas uh, with lots of little issues that consistently need to be worked out. But in general, um, you know, I'm not going to go to Oregon from Colorado. I'm not going to go to California and start running crews. And likewise, they're not going to come into the areas that I work in. And people have been pretty good about those things. It's, it's gotten a little fuzzier with the individual placements, but in, in general, uh, that's worked pretty well. So that was, that was not the issue. I think what, you know, in terms of being scared of something, I think the, the part that seems a little audacious is the Secretary of the Interior says this, why do I think we can come in and do something and approach mm-hmm. the Secretary and tell him here we are, and I'm from Podunk, Colorado, you know, in the hills, why, why can I do this? And I think what helped me on that was um, I had been working with, uh, I knew that a guy named Destry Jarvis, who you know very well, and George does, who uh, was in the Clinton administration, the Park Service, and long history of working. And he and I worked together at the Core Network for a year when he was uh, a sort of special assignment with us. So I knew him pretty well. And I had been working with him on some other matters that were local to my organization, uh, because he was at that point a lobbyist. Uh, and this was before his brother became the head of the Park Service. Uh, but when we would go to things, he sort of had this approach of, of course you should be in this meeting. You know, when I have an issue, he would say, oh, we'll get a meeting with the uh, assistant secretary. And we'd go in and sit down with the assistant secretary. And, and it just, it taught me that, you know, everybody's a person. We deserve to be there. We have legitimate stuff to talk about. And we should go in and, and have these meetings. And they're real people. And along with them. And that was a great lesson I learned from Destry that I think then helped when we were meeting with the Secretary of the Interior or we were meeting with the National Park Service Director or the the Chief of the Forest Service, that they're just people and we can go do this. That is one thing I'm consistently trying to drive home. I, I love that you brought that up yourself because I think that's, I think a lot of people are worried or afraid that, oh, these people are up here. I don't belong up here. My ideas aren't big enough for up here or whatever it may be. Um, I, I would say at the same time, if you don't take that that chance um, to meet with that person, someone is, right? <laughs> and right. so now you're just giving an opportunity to someone else. Not saying that you should taking something from someone else, but if you're not doing it, someone is going to meet with that person. They're going to have a full calendar. And they're a public official, right? Where our tax dollars are paying, their their obligation is to work with the community. And I think for us, we have to be respectful of their time, have a distinct message, a distinct ask for what we want. These aren't just meet and greets and let's be nice. No, it's here's the very specific thing we're asking you to do. And then having specific follow-ups. Who can I follow up with after this? Who will be my point of contact? What's the next step? Uh, but yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and I think they're happy to meet with people who are uh, trying to work with them. And, and we were 
did our homework and we knew what their uh, direction was for their agency or position. And I think we came in saying, hey, we can help you do something that, that your boss is telling you to do. And here's how we can help you. And this is what we need to make that happen. Again, I'm going to just key in on you knew what their boss wanted them to do. And you were looking for ways to help them accomplish it. Um, again, I think that's such a great technique and strategy that not everyone employs. Um, again, you had the opportunity to meet with these secretaries and deputy assistant secretaries and whatnot. Um, can you just share, like, how would you go about preparing to have a meeting with someone with that much influence? Oh, we had it pretty scripted when we would have a meeting. Uh, definitely a lot of homework. And I think on the part of just having a feel of what's going on. I mean, I, I think reading the news is super important for a leader. I mean, sometimes I sit in my office now and I feel like I spend, you know, the first I don't know, 45 minutes a day just reading stuff. What's going on? What's happening in very specific industry related stuff, but understanding what's happening out there and what the trends are and who's saying what is so important uh, to lead an agency or to try to help lead a movement into something. Uh, and, and understanding both the headwinds, the tailwinds. Uh, so we were able to come in pretty well prepared. Um, and when we had someone like Destry in a meeting who often had a personal relationship with who we were meeting, we had a, Destry would come in and establish, you know, have some, there'd be some give and take and how's the family and that kind of stuff. But it gave us uh, relevance there and gave us credibility to walk in with someone like him. Uh, and then, so we sort of did a one-two. He would do that kind of stuff and introduce the topic. And then I would dive into the meat of it with the ask. And it, it worked pretty well. And then we'd have different people queued up in the group to talk about very specific uh, things. Um, and then after doing it for a number of years, when Destry wasn't around, we got pretty good at sort of trying to do the same thing. For instance, he was never allowed to meet with his brother, you know, when his brother was part of the director. So, you know, we would handle those on our own. And third times he couldn't make other meetings, but it, we learned how to do it after having done it enough. And it is one of those things that it gets easier over time. Uh, but you have to do it the first time, right? <laughs> you have to do it the first time, you know, and I would say too, it's even though you mentioned these people have a lot of influence, I think um, in some ways I treat these, treated these meetings the same as any meeting, right? I mean, uh, we would try to make friends with the executive assistant on the way in, you know, we try to, if, if for some reason, you know, mm -hmm. at the last minute, which you know, happens all the time. Oh, the director can't meet with you, but here's someone else is going to meet with you. We treat it exactly the same. It doesn't matter that that isn't the person we thought we were meeting with. You know, everybody is important and you want to develop a relationship all the way through and you never know. I mean, look, Alex Tremble, look what you're doing. You know, we haven't <laughs> talked to each other in years and you got, you're got to be the next, uh, you know, going on the Today Show one day running it. <laughs> You know, you just don't know who you're talking to, what's going to happen. And so you just want to be respectful and treat everybody with respect and compassion and kindness. And well, again, thank you for that. And I have one more last question in this vein, and then I maybe take a, a bit of a left turn. Um, you've said multiple times now in our time together 
um, you talked about the importance of relationships and you had the right connections and whatnot. Um, again, how do you and how did you go about identifying who you needed to be connected to or who to spend your time building relationships with? Because the reality is you only have so much time, right? And so you have to be strategic at some level. So how did you go about doing that? Well, that's a great question. Uh, some of it is uh, connection by opportunity, <laughs> right? That you, uh, you have an opportunity to make a connection. And, you know, it might be you can lay out here are the 10 people I want to develop a relationship with within, say, the National Park Service. But if you don't have any connection to eight of them, it's not going to work, <laughs> right? And you might have connection to an 11th one who isn't on the list, but developing that relationship can help connect you to other people within there. So I think it's a combination of those two. What's the low hanging fruit that's available to you? And then how do you sort of strategize particular people? So, you know, an example is when, uh, when Sally Jewell took over at the second uh, term of the Obama administration as Secretary of Interior, mm -hmm. uh, she only brought one person with her from REI. You know, yep. when, uh, <laughs> when Salazar came in, he brought a whole bunch of people. And it was a little different. First term, you know, it's, it's all changeover. But Sally Jewell was coming from outside of government. And the person she brought with her from REI I'd had small connections with over the years, but as soon as we knew he was coming, we know it's not hard to figure out how they do the email addresses at Interior. So sent him stuff before he was even on board. So when he walked into his first day at work, he got an email from me from, you know, on behalf of this coalition. And he, you know, and then we met with him that first week and, and he said, boy, yours was the first email I got, you know? So we got into him very early, you know, and that helped make the connection right off the bat. So sometimes there's ways to sort of be strategic that way. And sometimes it's just, uh, you know, I think of Julie Rodriguez, uh, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, who was head of the youth program. But before that, she was working in, I think, communications at Interior. Uh, but she's from Los Angeles and our core directors in LA and in San Diego knew her really well. So was introduced to her through them. And at the time, she was completely unconnected to the work we were doing and then became a very important person in the work we do and is now, you know, a very important person in the transition and, and so on. But that was more of a, oh, poor people knew her, be great to get to know her. She's another person at Interior. And then it turned out she was very important to us. And there are probably a bunch of other connections like that that turn out there don't have that much relationship to the work we're doing, but are still great people and good to know. So. Yeah, I, I think that's so, it's actually really funny because as I've been moving down the pathway of doing this show, I am genuinely surprised sometimes, I shouldn't be, right? Um, but, but I'm genuinely surprised by how some people are connected to other people. Like, oh, you know this person? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can get to an interview. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that. So I mean, yeah. you said everyone has value, everyone's people. Right everyone's a valuable person and um, you just never know. You just never know. I, I think that's really important. And I think it also shows sort of how you relate to people. I remember one time we were hiring a new director for our Tucson office um, of conservation legacy. And I was down there to do the interviews and we had this crazy day of like 10 interviews. 
uh, back to back to back. And we had a person manning the front desk. And in a way, one of the most important parts of the interview was how the person who was coming in the interview treated the person at the front desk. Mm-hmm. You know, we had some that just were dismissive. You're just a secretary. I'm not going to talk to you. And others that completely engaged the person, wanted to know their experience. And uh, I think it, that's a part of this too. You know, it's, it's tempting if you're at a uh, you know, reception, the secretary has a reception and invites, you know, a hundred partners to come. And it's tempting to sit there and be looking around like, oh, I want to go talk to that person. So I'm talking to you, Alex, but I'm looking out of the corner of my eye because yeah. that person's more important, you know, but really I need to focus on you and have a genuine conversation. And that's the most important thing. And I, I think that's a part of real relationship building too, not just, oh, I'm going to get over there. No, I'm going to get there. <laughs> Well, again, there's this one. There's another question I'd like to ask you. Um, so, I am again. You are, as everyone can hear, you're a wonderful, caring person. Um, you're passionate about the work. You're passionate about the, the your employees, everyone you work with. Um, have you ever had to deal with um, an organization, or maybe a person, a significant or influential person within an organization, who? was being a taker, someone who was um, uh, maybe being selfish or railroading, could have railroaded what you guys were trying to get done. How did you work with that person? And if things didn't work out, how did you protect yourself? How do you keep moving your organization's mission forward? Oh, that stuff happens all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's never as smooth as you uh, want or hope uh, something will be. There's always ups and downs. I I think uh, having strong relationships helps when those things happen. Uh, So that can can support it. I think within a coalition, uh, it's important to set a culture and a tone for a coalition uh, and to model that as you go. So I was sort of coordinating a lot of the work of this coalition, but tried as hard as I could, and I'm sure I you know, I had my own ups and downs, but to really highlight the work of, of all the other programs. Uh, and so when we did these kind of meetings or public events, I rarely, rarely talked about the work our core was doing. Uh, part of it was I didn't want to feel self-serving. And part of it was I really wanted to model we're all in this together. Park, talk about the great stuff happening in Texas. And now Jeff's going to talk about the great stuff in Oregon. Now, John was going to highlight this uh, native crew he's running in Wyoming or Montana. You know, it's like, let's kind of highlight all the other stuff going on and hope that that sort of rubs off. And at times, there had to be sort of individual conversations with people. Um, you know, I, I will say we had one program early on that was sort of came in saying we're competitors with all of you and we're going to. Uh, push our own thing and we're going to do that. And we just sort of stuck together and kept with our culture and our mantra and we're totally respectful. And, uh, and eventually it took probably nine years, but that program came around completely. And when they came around, we said, sure, come on in, join the coalition. Happy to have you as a partner. You know, we're not, no hard feelings. There's no vendettas or you know, you want to be part of this now? Terrific. That's great. And we're not going to go, yeah, we told you. Who cares? The past doesn't matter. 
We're glad to have you. Let's work together. Thank you for tuning in to The Alex Tremble Show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. The results are in. Research has found that networking is one of the four skills absolutely required to successfully advance in your career. However, when asked, most government employees state that they don't network because they believe that networking is for extroverts and for people who care more about their own careers than the organization's mission. But what if there was a way to ethically network without looking self-absorbed and being a super extrovert? Well, there is. Alex Tremble has created a seven-week online networking course specifically designed to give ambitious leaders like yourself the skills needed to become a strategic networker. This course uses time-tested and research-backed strategies to help you identify, build, and maintain critical relationships with influential leaders. Visit alextremble.com courses networking to learn more about his networking model today. Use the discount code podcastfamily on the checkout screen to receive a 20% discount. Don't delay. Enroll today at alextremble.com courses networking. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year-round. WEPA has been insuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or a replacement for Fegley and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEPA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting WAEPA.org today. And now back to the Alex Tremble Show with your host, Alex Tremble. Th- thanks for sharing that, Harry. Um, I, I, I want to, I start this conversation out this way because I wanted everyone to have an understanding of what type of leader you are, um, at what level you were leading at, um, the influence you had within your sector. And you know, again, if everyone who's listening should understand like, hey, you had an almost like an outsized influence on what was going on, a very respected individual. Um, so what then made you feel that you could walk away from this, almost an empire, I don't wanna say, you know, not in a bad way, but almost an empire and go on to do something else that you're very passionate about. Um, at, at Pathpoint, I mean, you you were the CEO top dog, right? You were very influential within the core space. And then you stepped over to, to be the CEO um, in a completely another industry. So how did you, yeah, what made you feel that you could do that, that you could be successful? Oh, it's sort of a sad story, <laughs> but uh, uh, we lost our daughter, uh, age 14, to suicide in 2016, February 2nd, 2016. She had uh, what we feel was undiagnosed borderline personality disorder, which is a very serious mental illness uh, that most practitioners don't diagnose in kids, even though uh, all the science says that you can diagnose it in kids, and you should. Uh, for a long time, it wasn't, and many people still don't. And in our case, they didn't. And she never got the treatment she needed, even though we, we struggled trying to find it. Uh, and she took her life at a very young, young age. Uh, and that, for me, um, 
it just changed what I wanted to do with my life. And I wanted to focus on the issues that took her away from us. And as much as I cared about conservation corps and that work in 26 years of my life, I spent doing it. Um, I felt like I needed to do a different path for me. And it was hard to walk away. Um, it was hard. I mean, I was at, uh, before she died, as you say, I was CEO of this national organization that had gone from two staff in one corner of one state to working in 45 states and $20 million agency and one of the two or three biggest cores in the country. And I was at one point chair of the core network board of directors and I was leading this coalition. And when they set up the 21st Century Conservation Board Federal Advisory Committee, they made me chair of that. And I was like doing it all. And then all of a sudden, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do it anymore. I just, I needed to do something else. And I came out, I was fortunate that an agency like Pathpoint would hire me uh, with basically no experience in that field at all. I knew nothing. I, I couldn't have told you the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and uh, for it's been three and a half years and I have learned a huge, huge amount about uh, a very big system um, that is going through all kinds of changes. It's actually sort of an exciting time to be in it because of the amount of change that's going through it. Um, and I've been able to be involved at the state level and work with a lot of folks here um, and be able to do some of the stuff similar to what I did in with the cores. Uh, though it's a, it's a different system, it's a, a different feeling, but I guess for me right now, it does feel that every day I'm trying to, to do something that addresses the stuff that so impacted my family. I've also spent a lot of time the last three and a half years writing a book about our experience uh, that's near the final stages of uh, being finished. Uh, my daughter was a prolific writer. Um, and so we have her first person accounts through writings as well as emails, text, social media, all that of what she was going through uh, as well as our experience in trying to demonstrate that kids, children, teenagers, young adults can get this horrific disorder and we need to do something about it as a, as a society uh, because we're losing a lot of brilliant young people. Um, so it's, that's sort of a long story of how I really shifted almost completely. I mean, it's still a nonprofit field, but otherwise it's a, it's a very different field. Well, first, thank you, Harry, for for sharing that uh, that story with everyone and all of us. Um, obviously, you know, I still feel for you, and you know, I, I won't go into this, you know, here. But um, again, just just thank you, and I'm really looking forward, as I'm sure everyone is now looking forward to the release of your book. Um, Cause I'm sure it's gonna be extremely powerful given that you have actual words, um, thoughts 
of um, your from your daughter that you can share and and from your your family that I'm sure other parents um, and and youth as they read it will understand that they're not alone in what's going on and this could be something that helps them out um, profoundly. Um, so so th- thank you for sharing that. Um, I guess when you oh were you gonna say something? Well, I was just gonna say I think that it's. The, the issues around mental health are, are, are so monstrous in our country. Uh, you think about one out of every five people has a mental health disorder. I mean, that's, that's a huge number of people who are having trouble uh, functioning. And you think about young people, you know, the cores worked with youth, the amount of trauma that some young people go through and how that impacts their lives. Uh, The homeless issue, what's going on there has a lot of overlap with mental health issues. The prison populations in this country, the overlap with mental health issues. Um, it's, It's something that impacts so widely the fabric of our country and is not being dealt with or talked about. I mean, we just had laws on mental health parity so that you can, um, not just, it's been, it's been some years, but they aren't even impact, aren't even being fully followed where mental health has to be covered the same way as physical health and insurance. Um, it's been shunned and been a taboo for a long, long time. We're finally getting people talking about the number of athletes who've come forward the number of musicians and artists and actors who've talked about their own mental health struggles. We still don't see it in uh, many of our political leaders talking about it. We don't see it in many of our business leaders uh, because there's still this perceived thing that it's a sign of weakness, that it's not real, that you can just feel better. You know, but these are real problems that need to get uh, shown up and need to get <laughs> examined and need to be dealt with. The cost to our country from uh, this is billions and billions of dollars every year. Um, So I'm hoping to do our little bit to shine some light on this issue. I've shared before in another session, another interview, but I, it was Chris Rock. Yes, Chris Rock was being interviewed by uh, Trevor Noah from The Daily Show. (laughs) Um, and Chris Rock shared that he was going to counseling like six or seven times a week. Um, and Trevor Noah was like, well, you know, isn't that a bit much, basically? You're, you're going a lot. <laughs> and he was like, well, you know, I'm pretty sure The Rock or, you know, all other people, you know, go to the gym that at least that many times a week. So w- why is it different to work your, to work your body out um, and make sure your body's in a good space, but not your mind? Um, and I, my, my wife and I heard that and we're like, yes, ex- exactly. Like our minds are just as important. I mean, in, in a lot of instances, I think our minds are more important, right? Because if you have your mind, you have nothing. If you don't have your mind, you don't have anything. Absolutely. And it's time to, to admit it's not a weakness to take care of it. You know, you think Dak Prescott, who talked about what his brother died of suicide, I think maybe a murder because the brother passed away and the trauma he went through after that trying to deal with it and how it impacted uh what was going on you still had sportscasters going and say oh he's weak he shouldn't be doing that he should man up you know it's garbage and we need to get over that as a society 
Uh, and kids need to know that they can have these things too. And it's not just growing pains. It's not just puberty. There are real issues that go on and impact our chemistry inside our heads. And they need to be addressed. And we need more resources to, to do it. And we need more. I mean, this is, and you think about COVID. I mean, the amount of increases impact on people who are going through uh, this, this disease right now, people who are staying home and dealing with that and having those kind of problems uh, from isolation, older people who can't get out at all, can't see anybody. Uh, and then there's research now saying one in five COVID patients develops mental illness within 90 days. You know, these are people who didn't have it, <laughs> you know, because of the thought of the way COVID is affecting brain chemistry. So we, we've got to get a handle on this. And once you start digging down and realize how much of society it impacts, uh, it's, it's a little mind boggling. Well, I'll likely get myself in trouble for this, but I, this is something I'm consistently saying. Um, there's never enough resources until there's enough resources. Like there, there wasn't enough money until, oh, yeah, now we throw money at it. Like we have resource, like, the, like I said, this is important. Um, yes. So I thank you for the fight you're doing. I guess my question for you is, would you like to share, could you share maybe something special or something that's big, something that's, that's that you're working on it right now. That's exciting to you. Could, would you share that with us? Uh, well, I think the, the biggest things going on probably for all of us are we're in the middle of a pandemic and our worlds have changed. And I think the part that is, is interesting to me is what do we look like when we come out of this? Because I don't think we're going to look like we used to, right? I mean, we do a, we have a regional organization that used to have people driving together to have meetings and we're doing them through Zoom and Teams and we're not going back, right? I mean, that's a simple thing. There are a lot of people that are working at home now that are saying, heck, I could do this forever. And I, I think in our organization will have some of that too. But I think the bigger, broader stuff is how is our system going to change in the way that we support people? And what is that really going to look like going forward? Um, and I think in terms of my world now is people with mental health diagnoses and people with intellectual or developmental disabilities. And in those worlds, uh, we have gone from a world of where we locked everyone up. That was the first thing our society did, put them in institutions, you know, lock them up. When I was a kid, uh, it was like, well, they're not locked up, but they're segregated in congregate settings. So that when I was at school, we had a special ed classroom and a short bus. I never interacted with those kids, right? They were in their own classroom, their own bus. They had recess at a separate time. They're in the cafeteria at a separate time. Sometimes I saw them walking in the hall, but that was it. When my kids were in school, those, those people were in their classroom every day with an aide. They grew up with them, right? That's the future model. And that's what coming out of this thing, uh, that's what's going to emerge. And I think it's really exciting because we, we have emptied the institutions for the most part across the country, but we're still keeping people in segregated congregate groups uh, in day programs, in sheltered workshops, these are kind of industry terms, but that's what's happening is they're just keeping them together. And the future is gonna be, they're gonna be in the community everywhere. They're gonna be working in regular jobs. 
Um, and that's, I think, really exciting. And that's going to be a neat thing. And that's going to benefit all of us uh, out there. We have uh, these internship programs. It's just one, a couple of exciting things. <laughs> Uh, one is we have these internship programs where we have people with developmental disabilities working for a year in a big employer like a hospital or a hotel, and they work individually uh, all, all around. And uh, when we talk to people from the hospital, one at UCLA Medical Center, one of the biggest hospitals in the country and most respected, person brought the program and said, you know, we brought in thinking, heck, we're going to do some charity here. This will feel good to help these people out. And then after they had been in it, not even that long, they said, you know, we're benefiting as an institution more than all these people are. <laughs> We've benefited so much from having an interaction and we're going to hire a bunch of them. And they've hired 21 people, I think, so far in the jobs. They're like, these folks, some doing the jobs better than any of our people can. Mm -hmm. And they like it. They're happy. They're there every day. They're there early. They're staying long. They're not quitting. You know, we have people who have been in environmental services for 10 years now, right? These are the people who can do some of the jobs of the future of our country. And once we reorient ourselves, not to thinking about let's do charity and help these people out, but these people have special skills and abilities, let's bring them in. It's great. The last hospital I visited right before COVID hit, we had someone whose job, who in the internship, he was... Uh, preparing the surgical trays for surgery. So he was putting every instrument in the tray that had to be done, making sure they're all sterilized. This is someone with autism, I believe, and having things in order fits with how his brain works. So he's better at that job than I would be and that most of us would be. He's like the perfect person to do yeah, that yeah, job because yeah. <laughs> you can't have anything out of place. So that part is really exciting and seeing where that's going. The other thing that's really exciting is that we have people who we work with who have cerebral palsy, which uh, impacts their ability to use their muscles. So their hands, their legs, they're often immobile uh, using a wheelchair. And it also impacts over time, their ability to speak. Sometimes their ability to move their head. We also have people with autism that are nonverbal. Um, so what we found recently is that in the last five, five years, five plus years, is there is technology that can come in and help with this. So for instance, we had a person who was with us for, she's my age, in her, in her 50s, was there with us for 20 years, 20 years coming to a day service, um, who we weren't sure she knew anything more than an occasional yes or no by kind of blinking or not. Once we figured out this technology, we could hook her up to, um, uh, with a, a computer. She has a little switch that comes down from her ear on her cheek, move her cheek a little bit, and she can move a mouse on a screen. It was like, oh my God, we've unlocked someone yeah. who has all kinds of thoughts and ideas and plans. And she's surfing the internet, she has a Facebook page, <laughs> She's Skyping with her family so, so cool. she can type with her. Yeah. And then it goes even further that now you can hook up um, this mouse to a machine that will speak. Right. So now you can say, you know, uh, do what do you what do you want to do today? You know, I want to, you know, do art today. And then the computer speaks that for her. And then there's emotive things where instead of the cheek, 
It's a sensor that is put, used to be in little things across the head and now can be in the back of your eyeglass holders that hook on your head where the person can think and there's on the screen a ball, a floating ball, and with their thinking, they can move the ball and the ball hits different things. Like the ball goes, hits 12 o'clock, that means yes. So you ask a question, the person can sit there and, and then the computer speaks yes. But if you take this even further, what it means is you can hook up and like an Amazon Electra and the person can speak to the Electra, which can then turn their lights on and off, Whoa. change a channel of their TV. Yeah. Turn. So all of a sudden, the person who can, has nothing, no movement at all, can be speaking, can be controlling their environment. Uh, at some point, can be controlling their wheelchair, telling it where it wants to go. It could have an Apple Watch that could be doing the speaking and the motive thing here and the computer screen on their glasses. So it, it's just incredible where this stuff is going and how it's unleashing what is incredible inside of everybody and letting that person have communication. So there's some, some really neat stuff coming out there that's been fun to be uh, part of and even just being an observer and seeing this stuff and getting excited about it. You, you know, so it sounds like, I always tell you, I, I, one of the reasons I love being in D.C., uh, the D.C. area, is because of the diversity. Um, you, know, you have people, yes, from all over the country, you know, down south, west coast, east coast, whatever, Midwest. We have people all across the world, right? But it doesn't stop at just people from all across the world and all the different accents and different clothing and cultures. You have people, I, I used to see, I, I now see, you know, we have, uh, what, what is it called? The, um, the, the famous School for the Blind out here. Um, yeah, Gallaudet. Gallaudet. So, you know, if you're on the Metro, especially if you're on the red line, you'll see a lot of people just, you know, signing, you know, you have people with, um, who are on wheelchairs and getting around completely by himself. Um, a, a former senior level leader at OPM was blind. So he walked into all this meeting. Like, I, I feel like we're, we're turning that corner um, towards being accessible to everyone. And it looks like, again, we're also turning that corner on those with, who are dealing with disabilities. Um, but it sounds like you're saying we, we still have a long ways to go, a lot of investment to be made to, to continue to make um, life accessible to everyone. Yeah, but it's, you, you're right in both. <laughs> There's a lot of exciting stuff. We still have a long way to go, but we're turning the corner on having things that didn't exist five years ago, 10 years ago. And it's just going at warp speed in the ability to have all this uh, so technology has changed all of our lives, but for a person uh, like, like the woman I just mentioned, it's changed her life more than any of us could ever imagine. Yeah. I mean, if you think 20 years of your life or more where you can't speak, you have, you have all your thoughts in your head and you can't speak and people are saying, you know, you know, talking baby language to you or all kinds, you, you must be going nuts. And all of a sudden the world opens up to you. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. So there's some exciting stuff on the horizon. Uh, and I think five years from now, we'll look back at this time and say, we're, you know, we didn't even know what was coming in terms of technology and people with disabilities. Um, and, and th really quickly, does that also include things like, um, like stroke? Uh, uh, Absolutely. In fact, the guy who built uh, the, the speaking software did it because his mom had a stroke. 
And he was sitting there seeing that she could move her hand, but she couldn't, she couldn't do anything. So the old technology was you had sort of like a, a, a board that was like an alphabet. So if you couldn't speak, but you could move your hand, you could point to, you know, Y, E, S, you know, and spell something out. What his technology did is you can uh, just move your hand and different motions symbol different words and you create an alphabet or a, a dictionary that way. And then it actually speaks to you. So you don't have to have someone looking over your shoulder trying to spell as you go, but it's actually talking. It, it's, it's mind boggling once you start getting, and I'm just hitting the tip of the iceberg. I mean, <laughs> the folks who are the experts in this have so many ideas about where it's going to go. Well, man, I, I, uh, oh, oh, please. I'd say a lot of the experts are the people who are using it, you know, mm -hmm. they've mm -hmm. become the, the role models on it. Well, I, I'm looking forward to this technology moving at warp speed. Um, you know, you may, the reason I ask about strokes, because my grandfather, um, extremely smart man, this phenomenal individual, he recently passed uh, due to COVID. Um, but he oh, had, sorry to hear that. It was, it was, you know, obviously rough because we couldn't even be there with him. So it's, you know, it's a rough time. Um, but when he had a stroke, his mind was there. Um, he just couldn't talk or move much. Yeah. And we thought about how, how, excuse my language real quick, how crappy that must have felt to, you know, have people trying to guess at what you're trying to say, right? And if that technology had been around early and he had access to it, he could have still, yes, he had his stroke, but he could have still been communicating with the rest of the family. Like, like just imagine what that could do to any, for anyone's family member who's, who's can't communicate. I, I, I'm, I'm so looking forward to this, continue to move forward. Yeah, it's totally, I mean, there are things where you can do it by blinking. You know, you, you, it's eye tracking software and you look at the screen and you can move the mouse by moving your eye around and then blink and that double clicks it. Yeah, it's, it's amazing what's out there, but that's a perfect place where it could be used. You know, incredibly frustrating if you're not able to speak. Uh, a lot of people who have autism are in that, but certainly not all of those. We know a very wide spectrum, but there are a lot of people there who are nonverbal, but have incredible ideas. We have a board member at our organization who has written a whole book of individuals who are nonverbal writing their own stories. And some of the quality of the writing there is, <laughs> my, I wish I could write like some of those folks. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, Harry, I want to be respectful for your time. You, you spent so much time with us and shared so many cool just ideas and experiences and thoughts and bits of advice. And again, I, I, I just want to open it back up to you. Is there any last thoughts, comments, um, suggestions for life and careers that you'd like to leave us with? I would say follow your passion. I mean, that's the, and in my case, sometimes things change, you know, and your passion can change, but doesn't mean what you didn't, what you did before wasn't important. It's important, but follow your passion and do what you care about. Um, I think you'll, my view, be feel happier and more fulfilled no matter where it goes. You don't have to be the top dog in anything if you're doing what you love. Thank you for sharing that, Harry. I, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm internalizing that. Um, as I 
end every one of these interviews, please remember, don't just look back, reach back. If there's someone who you believe would benefit from what was said today, what was shared today, please don't keep this to yourself. Um, reach back, give it to someone else, encourage someone else to listen to it. Again, um, Harry is a very busy man. Um, and he's, yet he spent the time here to, to share his advice. So please take advantage of it. Um, oh yeah, always. Click the like button, click the subscribe button, click all those buttons that, that you know, that make sure this thing gets shared. Um, and as I thought in all my, uh, my, my sessions, uh, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. Bye everyone. See you, Harry. Bye. Oh, that was painless. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. <laughs>